Welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast. Kate here. Today, Professor Matthew Noon is the guest. He is at the University of Edinburgh and he does research in navigation and cellular basis of long-term and short-term memory. I thought that since it's been a year that I've started this podcast series, it might be a good idea to change the format a little bit. So in the introduction, instead of just briefly announcing the guest for the episode, I would like to explain why I chose to reach out to this person in the first place. Because we are very lucky in Munich. There are many guests coming not only to the Department of Biology at the LMU, but also to Max Planck of Neurobiology and Max Planck of Psychiatry. And it's not only for the difficulty of getting a scheduled slot, which is, of course, one of the very real reasons why the podcast is rather less frequent than I would wish, but also it is not every guest on the list that I choose to reach out to. So in the case of Professor Nolan, what appeals to me in his work is the way that he really uses all three levels of analysis, molecular, computational and behavioral, to address his research questions. What really appeals to me in his style is the crystalline clarity with which he writes and reasons. You can check any one of his many excellent papers. I would especially recommend the one most recent published with Sarah Tennant as the lead author in Cell Reports or any of his eLife papers published with his PhD student Angus Chadwick. I think that clarity comes across very well even in the spoken conversation, so Professor Nolan manages to answer very clearly my somewhat long-winded and mindering questions. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, thank you for agreeing to do this. So, I've seen that you've done your bachelor's degree in physiology, which is at this point and maybe outside of UK a bit rare. And I was wondering, how does that background influence how you view neuroscience problems today? I suppose, as a, in a physiology degree, you're, you're thinking very much about function and physiological function, um, which I guess can be a little different to uh, or, or whole animal function, what how animals work, which could be different to the focus that a molecular biologist might have. Um, or, or, or equally a psychologist, so maybe it brings that whole systems perspective a little bit. It's quite a long time ago though, so I'm not sure it's had a great deal of influence. But do you think that there is a distinct advantage in having a physiology degree and then coming to computational neuroscience and uh, not being a physicist coming to computational I see, neuroscience? I, see. I don't know. I often wish that I had done a physics degree rather than a physiology oh, degree <laughs> um, because it really equips you very well with uh, quantitative skills, um, which I think are harder to learn perhaps than um, the things that you pick up uh, doing physiology. I think, on the other hand, quantitative skills without physiological relevance um, are, are not very useful. So I, I suppose integrating both, whether you get the physiology first or the quantitative skills first, is, is, is important. Um, so, for, yeah, so for me, physiology came first. And then as a PhD student and postdoc, I made a lot 
put a lot of energy into trying to pick up quantitative expertise uh, and maybe have come, a, come at problems from a physiologist's perspective, which you know, could, be, could have been useful. So you mentioned your postdoc, which you did with the towering figure of Eric Kandel, and I was wondering how did that influence your style of doing science? Because I, I think he has a very distinctive approach to problems. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my postdoc had a big influence on what I've done since. I think there are a number of things that I would take away from Eric as inspiration for what I've tried to do. First is that his outlook is extremely broad. So when I was in his lab, he had people working at a detailed molecular level on, on problems of how synapses would, would modify their molecular composition to store memories. Um, but then he also had people working kind of at the level of almost psychiatry on, on how brains change in disorders, how behaviorally, how, how memory works. And then of course people like me in the middle who were interested in you know, sort of cellular biophysics and, and, and how cellular biophysics fits in. So what I really learned from Eric is the, the, the breadth of his approach and the importance of trying to integrate across approaches. The second thing I learned from him I think is about choosing problems to work on. So he gives a lot of thought to what makes an important question. And I don't think he would ever pursue a question for its own sake or just because he happened to have been working on it previously. He, he, he's really someone who gives a lot of big picture sort of thought to what are the right choices to make at an early stage of a project to um, try and set it up to do things that are interesting. He's also very patient with projects. So a lot of projects would last more than three years, four or five years, and he's quite happy. Um, he's quite happy to support people in his lab to do ambitious work over a over a long period of time. It, it can be very challenging to do that, but that's also something that I've tried to um, do um, in, in, my, in my lab, and I, I think it's important as well. That uh, is something that from. Looking from the outside, I noticed uh, looking at the blog of your PhD student relating how he was trying to build the virtual reality system. <laughs> and I was actually wondering about that. How yeah. do you make this move and support, especially when it's a PhD student to a PI rather than PI to a postdoc, where I think the confidence is much more established? How do you support long-term projects? With junior people, yeah. With, with junior people. I think it's very difficult, and I think um, partly it's difficult because of the sort of framework that we operate in, in which a PhD is three years or four years, a postdoc might be that length as well, at least in the UK. Um, in the States it's a little bit different, PhDs tend to be longer, uh, and postdocs also, my postdoc was over six years, so it's a different sort of time frame. So what we do in the lab, first of all, is to sort of break projects into component parts, mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the virtual reality project that you, you talked about uh, with the Lucas's blog. Mm -hmm. So the main focus of his PhD was building a, a sort of virtu a virtual reality system quite similar to the, the, the systems that David Tank's lab has set up, but trying to build it in a way that it could be used for behavioral experiments as, as well as for doing physiology. And he got so far, and I think he, he achieved his goals of building the system, um, but we didn't publish anything at that point, but actually to make the project complete, uh, a 
second PhD student, Sarah Tennant, then built upon his work to really transform it to something that would be very productive at doing behavioral experiments. And so the completed project from the initial idea before Lucas joined the lab through to when we published the, the, the paper was probably over six years um, for, for two PhD students. And they both made very important contributions to, to the, the, the paper. Yeah, it's, that's, that's, that's just how it goes. <laughs> yeah, but it's for sure worth it. So if I understand you correctly, that's the cell reports paper, right? So yeah. the one that is showing the functional contribution of layer 2 stellate cells to path yeah. integration. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was really important because there are so few papers that focus on really the identified cell type and the functional consequence of disrupting it. So I was wondering, what is your opinion on how the cell type concept is used in the navigation field because we have the functional definition of clay cells, grid cells, yeah. but we have little idea of what, what are those genetically and molecularly. Yeah, okay. Um, I think it's very important. I, I also just realized I, I forgot to mention another big influence that Eric had on me, which is that he's really very driven to address things from a molecular perspective um, as, as well as a behavioral and a cognitive perspective. And the, the idea that using molecular biology because that really determines how our cells work can, can really lead us to insights is something that Eric certainly was very influential on what I've done since. So it's a really interesting question then in the spatial cognition field is how do we map the sort of molecularly determined cell types onto the sort of diversity of functional cell types that have been discovered. Um, I think we perhaps don't yet know enough about the molecularly determined cell types in enterrhinal cortex, for example. So we've, we and other people have had, made some progress, several labs defining cell types in layer two, so calbindin and, and pyramidal cells. Work that we've done on deep layers of enterrhinal cortex defining sort of different cell types in layer 5a and layer 5b, which we can identify by expression of different transcription factors. And they point to sort of diversity that wasn't until recently appreciated. Um, the experiments that one then has to do to map this molecular diversity onto the functional diversity, I think are mostly not yet done. So it's, it, it, it's a bit speculative perhaps to try and imagine how it might map. So one model is that it simply doesn't map at all. Um, and, and I, I probably, my guess is that's going to be unlikely. And one of the reasons I suspect that is that the different molecular cell types project to different parts of the brain. They have different connectivity, both in terms of their long range projections and, and their local connections. Um, and if we assume that connectivity is a major determinant and predictor of function, then we'd expect that the functions of these different molecular cell types will differ and, and, and probably they'll be different. I think these are all exciting experiments to do in, in, in the future, at least for the deeper layers of enterrhinal cortex. But do you think that it really is only about the connectivity or maybe even the single cell properties? Because some of your earlier work, especially connected to theta, is suggesting that, for example, interneurons when they are spontaneously active, they integrate spatial signals and the theta base American inputs, and they can themselves already generate the phase processing action potential. Yeah, so, so intrinsic properties differ between cell types. Yeah. 
Uh, and that's another really good question, is what do those intrinsic properties do? So I think the simple answer would be they, they clearly determine how different cell types integrate their, their synaptic inputs. And if you change the expression of IH, for example, um, you, you can change the information that's encoded um, by different cell types. In, in some ways, the HCN1 channels are an interesting example here because um, we showed that you need them for IH in um, CA1 pyramidal cells and in enteronal cortex. Uh, when we looked at spatial behaviors, the animals learn just fine, and in fact, they learn faster when, uh, in, in some spatial tasks when you, when you delete the HCM1 channels. So this was sort of a surprise, because it tells us you don't need the HCM1 channels to learn a Morris water maze task. Uh, and it does sort of beg the question, what are they good for? So I would sort of think that we might get basic explanations for a lot of the basic aspects of how hippocampal enterinal circuits work without paying too much attention to intrinsic currents or intrinsic properties. But the more complex aspects of spatial processing memory may be where these fine differences in intrinsic properties might come into play. That might be where, where they turn out to be more important. Coming back to this uh, interneuron story, I was yeah. wondering how did you start on that path because as you mentioned previously, the focus has been mostly on the pyramidal cells. So what, what got you interested in the interneurons and what do you think the results of that modeling tell us and, and how do they change the way we, we should think about this circuit? So this is Angus Chuckwick's yes, exactly. work um, with the, the phase processing interneurons. Um, so the story behind that is so the first part of Angus's PhD, he, he built some models that implied that to understand theta sequences, we, we would need good models of single cell theta phase procession. And then in thinking about where theta inputs come into the hippocampal circuit, and then how the local circuits are organized, we, we sort of speculated that because the septal input is onto interneurons, um, that, that maybe they're integrators of septal inputs with um, envelopes that would drive spatial firing. And, and that led Angus to develop a model that can exp explain phase procession through interactions between inhibitory interneurons receiving pacemaker septal input and uh, place cells. Um, so the model makes a number of predictions and a next step to do would be to design experiments to test those predictions. Um, it is important, it's just a model, so we certainly I think that good science will progress by, by, by testing models. And I think the next experiments to do are experiments that test predictions that, that Angus's models so do you have those experiments planned in your lab or are you collaborating with someone or is it more like here is the model, go for it? <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the moment it's here is the model, go for it okay. because we, we don't have the resources to do the experiments that we think would be the best experiments to do. And, and there are other questions that people in my lab want to work on. I think if somebody joined the lab who was interested in these questions then we would, uh, we would have a go. But at, at the moment there isn't anybody in the lab who's interest match with, with with testing those predictions so hopefully other people <laughs> will, will be thinking about it and um, at, at some point we'll, we'll, we'll figure out to what extent if any the model the model holds.
But how do you view the modeling practice in general in the hippocampal field? Because sometimes it looks like the models are discredited by the experimental, contradictory experimental findings, but then if you look at the experimental design, it may not have been optimal or controlled enough, but because it's experiment, it, it takes precedence over the theoretical work. You may not agree with that. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I, I think, actually, work on entorhinal cortex is a nice example of where modeling and experiments can feed off each other. Um, I mean, since the Moses discovered grid cells, they've really been inspirational to people to develop models, uh, and there have been really interesting competing models that have been proposed to explain uh, grid firing. So it's a very interesting oscillatory interference model that um, Neil Burgess and John O'Keefe um, um, developed. There are the continuous attractor network models which actually predate the discovery of grid cells. So Bruce McNaughton, years before, proposed something like this to explain place firing. And um, M Michael Milford, in his work on robotics, also had sort of developed a model which coincidentally happened to have cells with somewhat grid-like firing properties. And these models, I think, have really shaped how people have designed experiments. Uh, and I think a nice example will be to look at David Tang's recent paper imaging grid cells from mice navigating in virtual reality, where he finds really beautiful evidence for organization of grid cell networks in enteronal cortex. And something that, I mean, is the paper's beautiful from a technical perspective, but it's also really beautiful from the perspective that a lot of the experiments are trying to test ideas that have been developed through theory and I think it leads to insights that one wouldn't have if one was only doing experiments. So I, I don't think one should take precedence over the other. I think actually science will progress fastest when they, that they both interact. In the, in the way that I think in, in the enteronal cortex field they have often done in, in really nice and interesting uh, ways. I think many people would agree with that vision of having theory and experiment working together, but it seems like that runs into the problem of training people to actually mm. do that. So yeah. especially with your lab being quite successful in doing both, how mm. do you go about recruiting people? So do you, do you take experimentalists and theorists in equal parts, as it were, or do you think that now it is reasonable to expect a single person to have expertise in both? I think I've been quite good. I've been quite lucky to have people who are good at one or the other mm -hmm. come and join the lab at, at, at different times. It's, and usually people have specialized, so it's quite rare that someone develops a high level of expertise in, in both. And actually a nice example of where specialism worked together is in the, the study that um, Hugh Pastol and Lukasz Solanka published together where we looked at the connectivity in layer two of enterobinal cortex, how local circuits respond to theta frequency inputs. And, and, and Hugh and his experiments could, could show that optogenetically driving the layer two circuit at theta frequency could generate nested gamma oscillations that people had described in vivo. And he could also unpick the circuitry and, and find that local excitatory to inhibitory loops were, were very important in an experimental sense. And what was very nice is that Lukash was at the same time trying to develop models to explain how the layer 2 circuit worked. And he was able to develop a parallel model that could explain 
Hughes data as well as actually showing how the circuit could produce grid-like grid firing patterns. So there, Hugh and Lukash were both specializing, one in experiments, one in modeling. I think the more important thing is that they could talk to each other and both understand what they were doing. So Lukash had a really great insight into how the experiments worked, and equally, Hugh had a very good insight into how the, the modeling worked, and they could sit at desks next to each other and chat. And I, I think that's probably really important, is having people in the same lab with these different expertise and, uh, and having things so that they can talk and, uh, and that way sort of good things can come from, from, from doing that. But you wouldn't believe that a single person can pull off both at a required level? I think they, they, they <laughs> could. I think, it's, I think it's very difficult. I think the most important, the first really important thing to do is to be able to talk the same language to, to each other and I think that takes a bit of effort on both parts. I think for experimentalists, I think being familiar with the basics of how models work um, is, is extremely important. Being able to code and perhaps write simple models as well is, is useful. But equally for modelers to have you know, genuine insights into how experiments work, what data looks like, uh, and real data as well as sort of abstract simulation results. I think they're the key things. Uh, being a, a high-level expert in both, what possibly isn't sort of necessary. I was wondering about your opinion about open science because I've seen mm. your lab website shares tools and code, and especially the cell reports paper has everything available on GitHub. Yeah. And also, I've seen that your own reviews on eLife, for example, are signed. I, I think in general, it's a good idea. There are different elements to it. So there's the data sharing, which I think is very important. So I mean, for a long time, we've shared code for models. It's been harder to share data, um, although it, it's becoming easier. So that the Sarah's recent paper, we, we were able to share all the data. I think it's important for a number of reasons. I think reproducibility is essential. And I think um, sharing code, I mean, really, it should be mandatory. There's no reason not to share code, it's quite easy to do. Sharing data as well means that people can reproduce your analyses and all uh, go and do their own analyses with the data, which may, may lead to interesting things that you haven't thought about. And, and if it can be done without much effort, then really it's a, it's a good thing. I think it's also good for the people doing the work, because if you, if you know you're going to have to share your code at some point, then you're much more likely to annotate it well. Um, in a sense, when you're sharing code, you're, it's a sort of classic idea, you're sharing it with your future self six months down the line who is going to go back and look at your code. And it, and it, and it kind of, it, it just creates a mindset where you're, you're trying to make your code really clear and um, understandable. And I, I think that, hopefully, if everybody does it, should, should lead to better science. So I, I think that's important. As to the, the peer review process, I, I think anonymity could be actually a good thing for the peer review process. So I'm, I'm not convinced that signing reviews is necessarily the best thing. I, I think it's difficult. I think on the one hand, if reviews are signed, there's more chance that reviewers get credit for the reviews that they carried out. I think that's good because at the moment, some people review a lot and nobody knows and they don't really get any, any credit. I think that would be nice to, to rectify that. I think there's a, there's a sort of a, a worry 
that some people have that people could experience consequences from signing their name, either positive or negative, and, uh, and that at least requires some thought what, what, what effects that would have on, on how science works. So I, I'm not convinced about signing reviews, but, but sharing data openly and code, I, I, I think, hopefully we'll get to a point where everybody does it and it's routine, and hopefully that will come quite quickly. Staying on the writing topic for a little mm. bit. I have never seen so many reviewers commenting on the clarity and the logical integrity of the text as with your papers, and I, I would completely agree with that. Oh. And I think striking how unambiguous the formulations are and how mm. writing is very concise and clear. And I, I was just wondering whether you have any guidelines or rules that you <coughs> use for yourself when you write papers yeah. It's painful, it takes forever. <laughs> I mean, I value clear writing. There's, I mean, just, I mean, if we're doing science, we want to communicate it with each other, so the clearer we can be, the better. If our, if our, if our ideas are obscure, then it's, it, it, it's almost not worth doing the work. How to be clear? I, I don't have a, a method other than to read it and ask, does this make sense? And if it doesn't, to, to rewrite over and over again, and, and then to try and get feedback from people who who will be very critical, and that can be very helpful um, as well. But really, I, I think a lot of clear, a lot of at least to me, probably not a natural clear writer. I, I think it's just um, hard work. And now the three questions that I ask all the guests. Um, the first one is, which skill or skills do you wish you have picked up earlier on in your career? That's a difficult question. Probably quantitative skills. So probably I, I said earlier that I would have yeah. wished I'd done a physics degree. I, I think the quantitative skills that come from physics. I, I think that earlier I, I, I could have picked those up. In it, in it, there were things that I loved at school, mm -hmm. but, but didn't do until the end of my undergraduate. So that that, that would have been things that I, I would have liked to do earlier. Just a small question related to that. So you mentioned that you did it autodidactically afterwards, mm -hmm. but do you think <coughs> the, the most fruitful approach is to actually just try whatever you need to do and, and then learn it on the job, or to actually take more courses? I'm personally, I'm a big fan of learning on the job. Um, so my first serious coding was um, using Neuron, and, and learning the Neuron programming language to, 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 to build models. More recently, actually, the last few years, I have a project which I'll talk about this evening, uh, where we've used R for mm -hmm. a lot of the analysis. So again, I, I wouldn't have learned R for its own sake, um, but as a tool for data mm -hmm. analysis, when you have data in front of you, that's really, um, for me, the best way to learn, because then when you have a problem, you actively go and figure out how to, to, mm -hmm. to solve it, which is a, a good way for, for, for learning. I think that, that that is true probably from the students' side. Is that, that, yeah. 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 Uh, it, it's just the, the biggest incentive when you, you have a deadline, especially right. <laughs> for your own data. Yeah. And then you get something meaningful back yeah. as well, you learn something. Yeah. That's yeah. rewarding. Yeah. And do you see a theory that you would think is successful in neuroscience today? A theory that's successful? Yeah, so um, not like a single model, but a larger theory that is successful at explaining many facts that we've gathered throughout the years. Uh, 
I mean, the, 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 the obvious piece of theoretical neuroscience that's been incredibly successful is the Hodgkin and Huxley model for the action potential, and that's still what everybody looks back to as the model for, 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 for theory and experiment. And that really has been so astoundingly successful that then when we try and think of other um, examples, it, it's quite challenging. I think we're perhaps still at quite an early stage in figuring out how brains work. And one of the things we're discovering is that they're incredibly complex. And, 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 and what neuroscience lacks at the sort of circuit cognitive level is perhaps explanatory theories that uh, are general <coughs> and um, make predictions from first principles. Uh, and actually, I don't think at that level we're, we're there yet with theories that are predictive in the way that the Hodgkin-Huxley model is for the action potential. I don't think we have that. It's interesting, we may even have the data, and we haven't had the ideas yet to put all the data together, or we may not yet have the data. I think there's a good debate there about what sorts of data we need, whether we have enough, um, whether we're asking questions the right way, or, or whether we should be thinking differently. Um, perhaps a theory is out there that's still very obscure that people haven't paid enough attention to. Um, so I, I don't think there is a good general theory or set of theories for how brains work, and I think it's an important problem. And on the other side, is there a piece of data from your lab or from any other lab that you are most excited about? Single pieces of data are difficult, because single pieces of data are rarely <coughs> on their own exciting. I think in the time that I've been working as a, as a neuroscientist, the single most exciting piece of data that when um, I saw it and friends at the time saw it, I was with, we all just said, wow, was when we first saw the grid cell um, data from the Mosul lab. So that really was jaw-droppingly exciting <coughs> to see these amazing regular repeating firing fields, which I think part of the reason it's exciting is I don't think anybody had really anticipated that something like that could exist. Um, and, and so that really was a tremendously exciting piece of data, so I think... Anything more recent that comes to mind? Hmm. I think... Um, so the papers on the membrane potential dynamics of place and grid cells were both quite exciting. Um, I mean, really beautiful technical experiments, which is partly the idea of patch pumping in an awake animal and having such beautiful stable recordings which those papers have is really quite something. The results are perhaps more, more, more predictable, but I mean, I mean really important results, but, but, but less completely out of the blue. Um, a lot of papers that I really like, that I think are really important, are really nothing to do with functional firing properties of neurons in vivo, but molecular organisation of circuits. And it's, it's hard to pick out a single paper, but papers that sort of deconstruct the logic of how circuits are organized in a molecular way. And you can go back to Richard Axel's work on olfactory um, sensory neurons, um, really was one of the first sort of people to really start pushing this approach. And, and now really multiple papers that show us how 
often different transcription factors define different cell populations that then have very specific connectivity with, with other parts of the brain. Um, a study of ours that Gushan Samelli did, which was figuring out connectivity of layer 5A and layer 5B neurons um, in the lab. This was really exciting when we started getting data uh, for that project because we had thought that layer 5 of entorhinal cortex was this just this heterogeneous group of cells. And actually to see that it divided into two layers from expression of two different transcription factors, and then that the connectivity of the neurons in each layer is completely different was really quite exciting because it really wasn't something that we thought about before. Um, and so, yeah, so that's also the type of data that I think is really, really, really interesting and really fun as well to look at when you, when you start getting the results. Thank you for tuning in.